We'll spend the next few months probably studying this amazing book of Romans. The introduction to the book, which went all the way through verse 15, that we went through last week, was basically Paul talking to the Christians there in Rome. And again, Rome was one of the only churches that Paul wrote to that he didn't really know the people and he didn't start the church. Most of the other books that he wrote to churches were to churches that he had planted. But in this case, it was different. And so he starts off and you know, he's just talking about his calling and how he has been praying for them and the good things that he hears about them and, and then tells them that he's really anxious to come and see them, not only so he can minister to them, but so they can minister to him as well. Just a, a beautiful introduction. And, uh, and then it winds off by verse 14 where Paul says, I am a debtor. I owe it to people who don't know about Jesus to go and minister to them and share with them. Not because they had done anything for him, but because of what God had done. He goes, God's been so good to me, and God tells me to share that love. And so this is something I have to do. It's a debt I have to pay. And then the beautiful accompanying couplet to that is in verse 15, so as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel. And so... I am debtor and I am ready. That describes Paul's life. He was driven by the desire that he had to, to, out of gratitude for what God had done for him, to help as many people as he could, and he was ready to go. Whenever the door opened, whenever the opportunity came up, he goes, I'm, I'm ready to go. A great reminder for us to not only recognize what God has done for us and the fact that we too are debtors to anyone that we can help, but also to get ourselves ready, to be prepared for whatever opportunity comes up. Sometimes we're just way too attached to life and to things and everything else so that if God did give us an opportunity, we couldn't do it because we don't live our lives in such a way that we're available. And Paul certainly was ready to drop everything when he had an opportunity for a door that would open now in verses 16 and 17, he gives the entire theme of the book of Romans. This is what he's talking about. And it's on the basis of his desire to come and minister to them. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul wasn't ashamed of the message that he brought. Now, there would be a lot of people who would be ashamed of such a message because it was offensive to a lot of people. And we're going to see as we read on in this chapter, when your message is, God wants to save you, and that's the message of the gospel. God loves you, and he wants to save you. The word gospel just means good news. You go, well, who could be offended by that? Why would you be ashamed of that? Well, the problem is, the implication behind it is that you need someone to save you. And a lot of people are really offended when you imply that they are sinners, that they've missed the mark, that they 
cannot do it on their own, that the best they can ever be is never going to be good enough to get them into heaven. Now, that's good news once you realize it. And most of us came to a point one day where we realized, you know what, I just can't be good enough. I try, I do the best I can, and it's not good enough. It's not satisfying even the people around me. I can't even keep to my own rules that I make up. And so that's what the Bible calls being a sinner. I realize that I'm my own worst enemy. I realize that I am doing things that are ruining me. I hurt the lives of people around me. Everything I want to do, it seems like it's bad for me. Every time I feel really strongly driven to something, it turns out it was a mistake. But getting over that hurdle is a tough one. And so Paul, in sharing with people, said, hey, I'm not going to apologize for that. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed to tell people that they are sinners in need of a Savior because they really need that, and it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. If there is any kind of power in life... It's not the power of positive thinking. It's not the power of doing your best. It's not the power of drinking the right energy drink. If there is anything that really has the capacity and the ability to save someone when they're really broken, it's the gospel. And so he says that is the power of God. The word there for power is the Greek word dunamis, which everybody always makes the big connection with dynamite, but really what the word means, a better derivative of it is dynamic. Dynamic means that something's happening, things are moving. The opposite of dynamic is static, if you remember your science, your physics lessons. Oh, who am I fooling? Most of you didn't take physics, but you probably heard it on some TV show or Jeopardy or something. But, you know, you have things that are, dynamic, they're moving. You have things that are static, they're sitting there. And he is saying, the gospel, the good news that God has for you is the thing that can really get your life moving. It's God's dynamic that'll save you. You are on a road that's heading downhill. You're spiraling. You're in a death spiral. And if you just keep going the way you're going, you're going to smack into a wall someday. But God has the ability to move you off that path, to take you out of that self-destructive tendency. The fact that you just keep doing dumb things and hurting people around you and hurting yourself, and God can deliver you from that. And that's good news once you realize it. Until you discover that you need to be saved, that sounds really um, judgmental and offensive. And I think partly it's because of the way we communicate it. A lot of times we come across like, you know, I used to be like you, scum of the earth. Now I'm not. And you really need to be like me. But see, the gospel isn't that. The gospel is, I'm just like you. But I realize that God loves us and that he can... He can really bring about changes in our lives and give us meaning and, and ultimately guarantee us heaven. And he wants to do that for dirtbags like me and you. And that's really the message. And that's where 
the power of God lies. And as he says, to the Jew first, God's been trying to express this to the Jews for a couple thousand years, but now he's also saying, hey, this is good news for you Gentiles. And most of the people there in Rome were Gentiles. And so he says, I'm not going to apologize for that message. I am not ashamed. I'm, I'm shy about coming to see people I don't know, but man, you plug me in and I'll come to your town and I'm going to tell people the gospel because it's great news and it's the only thing that's going to change people's lives. And so for the Jew first, and not only that, the Gentiles get in on it. And he's going to have a lot more to say about Jews and Gentiles as we get into the book. But he says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith was a quote from back in Habakkuk chapter 2. Paul uses it here in Romans 1. He also uses it over in Galatians chapter 3. And then the author of Hebrews, who I believe is also Paul, uses it in Hebrews chapter 10. The just shall live by faith. This is the point. The point is, God doesn't want you living by a rule book. And I think sometimes we give people the wrong idea when we talk about the the, uh, Bible as if it's life's instruction manual, it's the... You know, it's the um, repair manual for life and all that kind of stuff. See, in some ways, the law was the instruction manual. But people figured out they couldn't do it. They couldn't be that good. But that was never God's intention. His intention in the law was just to help us realize we don't get it. Then when we realize we can't do it, then he could come in and be our Savior, and help us to live by faith. He doesn't want us to live our lives going, oh, let's see, what should I do? And flip through the book, and somebody finds us a verse, and oh, this is what we are to do. Now, when you're young in the Lord, that's where you get started. That's what starts bringing you in. But it's amazing, after you walk with God, (coughs) you realize He works inside you. The Spirit of God is actually speaking to you. And if you have a heart of obedience to him and you live based on what he has told you, you end up walking by faith, not by sight. You end up knowing what he wants you to do. He gives you the desires of your heart. And he is the one who actually gives you the righteousness. You don't earn anything with him because you can't. But he ends up working in your life in such a way that you find yourself becoming more righteous. And not even so much intentionally as it is, I'm just looking at him and spending time in his word and I'm enjoying what he has done for me and he's blessed me and I want to do the right things. It's amazing and I, can, and I can live by faith. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The more you realize what God has done for you, the more you want to do things his way because you realize he knows what he's talking about. And so, you know, what Paul is getting at here is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As as we grow in faith, the righteousness of God just shows up. And he makes us better people than we ever could have made ourselves. But he gives us his righteousness. And that's where 
And this is the whole thing of grace and the gospel that's so important. Because it's no longer about me being righteous. It's about what he has done for me. But there's nothing that will deliver you from messing up your life like realizing that God forgives you faster than you can commit sin. To understand his complete and total forgiveness. To understand that he loves you and he will never love you less no matter what you do. You can't be good enough to make him love you more. You can't be bad enough to make him love you less because his love for you is depending on what Jesus Christ did for you. Now that, a lot of people are afraid of that, afraid of the grace of God because they think that people will go, and we're going to get into this a lot later in the book of Romans, but they think that people are going to go, you mean I'm forgiven no matter what? Then I might as well do stuff. The Catholics centuries ago got into this with indulgences. They, they came up with this idea that after you did a really bad sin, you could come and make a donation to the church and it would pay for that sin to be forgiven. Nice system. And I'm sure when it started, it was probably with a good heart of going, you know, you just need to make things right and be truly repentant. And if you throw a few bucks in, maybe it's going to show that you really are sorry. But it became a great way to build cathedrals because people sin a lot. <laughs> and so it was, a, it was a pretty powerful system. Martin Luther really rebelled against it in the 16th century. But it was only one step from the initial indulgences to where like a guy like Tetzel, who was the main indulgence salesman for the Catholic Church, he came up with a great plan. He goes, you know, you go and sin, you feel really awful about it, and then you come and you buy your indulgence and then you feel better. He's going, there's nothing better than guilt-free sin. So why don't you just come and pay up ahead of time, and God, kind of like when Nixon was pardoned you know, by Gerald Ford, it's like, okay, you haven't been convicted of anything, but I'm already saying you're forgiven even before you do it. And, I mean, that'd be a nice feeling for someone to pardon you up front. And so that's what they would do. They would pay ahead of time so that they could sin and enjoy it. Well, that's what people think you'll do if you understand God's grace. Because it does make sense on a certain level until you realize a couple of things. As you grow in the Lord, you realize that every sin that you commit isn't just against God, but it's also against yourself and everyone else. You're realizing that the reason God tells you to do certain things and to not do other things is because those things he's telling you not to do is what's messing your life up and everybody else's life up. And once you begin to get that, and then at the same time you realize God is so good. He continues to love me. Takes the pressure off because you're not trying to earn anything, but amazingly, righteousness just starts to happen in your life. A real righteousness where... The desire to do things that you used to do just kind of goes away. Now, I can't explain why some people struggle with certain sins for years and other people 
don't struggle with those sins and right away it's taken away. I have a real heart of compassion, for instance, for people who um, struggle with stopping using drugs. Um, Because before I was a Christian, I used drugs. When I became a Christian, I just lost all desire immediately. And I didn't even, I didn't try to quit. I didn't go to a program or anything. I was sitting there with people in the neighborhood and they were passing a joint around and somebody passed the joint to me and I just passed it to the next guy and kept, and then I'm like, that was weird. I didn't, I didn't take a hit off that joint. Strange. But there are other things in my life that it took me a long time and that I am still struggling with and that I still need to be delivered from. Now, sin is sin, so I'm not going to go, man, if you can't quit smoking pot or taking pills or drinking or whatever, there's something wrong with you because for me, God took that away from me when I was a brand new Christian, and that's what God does to brand new Christians. Because then I'd have to explain to you why I'll still get mad or why I still say hurtful things sometimes to people or why I'll be selfish or you know, why... I'm going down to the store to buy my wife some medicine and I come out with a candy bar. It's like, um, it's just hypothetical. Um, But see, what God wants to do is work in our life in such a way that some things you struggle with, some things you don't, but ultimately when you understand that, you know, God forgave you for eating that candy bar, and he's not, like, mad at you or anything. Don't tell my wife about it, though. But she's not God. But you realize that, you go, what a stupid thing that was. I didn't need that. It's not good for me. And more and more, the desire just goes away to do things that God doesn't want you to do. And so God reveals his righteousness in us. And that is really the story of the book of Romans how God works in your life by his grace, nothing that you could do to earn it, and he begins to fix what's wrong with you. He begins to work in your life, and it's a lifelong process. But he, it seems that he delivers us from sins when we don't even, we aren't even trying sometimes. And, and often people get focused on certain sins that they're trying to quit, And they aren't even noticing God's given them victory in a whole bunch of other areas. And they aren't even thankful to him because of something stupid like, you know, I can't stop smoking. And yet God may be making you a more loving person, which is a million times more important than whether or not you are stupid enough to suck nicotine into your lungs. And and yet we can just go, oh man, I got to quit smoking, got to quit smoking. And somebody's going... Have you noticed that all of a sudden you care about people more than you ever did before? That you're doing some selfless acts? That you're praying for people? That you're enjoying reading the Bible? And you're like, yeah, yeah, you know, all that, of course, but got to quit smoking. No, you got to let God do what he wants to do in his timing, in his way. And the book of Romans frees us up from picking and choosing and deciding for ourselves, okay, what's my self-improvement plan? How am I going to fix my life? The glory of Romans from faith to faith, 
the just living by faith is the fact that we let him do the work in our lives. We let the Spirit do what the Spirit's good at. And what we need to focus on is what God's already done for us. We pray for him to help us in areas where we struggle. We see the standard. We know we don't live up to it. We cry out to him for help. And then we celebrate what a good God we have, how much he loves us, and the fact that it's his job to fix me. It's not my job to fix me. And discovering this, the just shall live by faith, well, it's what turned Martin Luther's life around and ultimately it's what um, brought on the Protestant Reformation. <coughs> Martin Luther was a monk who believed that you needed to torture yourself to become more godly. And as was often the case then in monasteries, and, and to a degree there are people who still believe this today in the world, where you need to deprive yourself and punish yourself for your sin, and then somehow you'll get better. And Martin Luther used to, there in the mountains of Bavaria, lying naked on a concrete floor in the dead of winter to try to somehow connect with God, torturing himself, starving himself, and things like that. And when someone later was asking him about it and said, man, you must have really loved God, and he said, love God? I hated him. Because that kind of, just like when somebody's trying to get you to be good and they're beating you up all the time and, and lecturing you and nagging you, it doesn't make you any better. It makes you feel worse. It causes you to want to fight against that. It's something that parents have to learn in dealing with their kids is what's the best way to influence our children to go in the right direction? Because we think if we force them, that's going to work. With some overly compliant children, maybe it does. But other strong-willed children, it just works against them. And you have to figure out, okay, God, what do you want me to do for my child? How can I be used by you? Where does your grace come in and all? So, but what Martin Luther, when he was reading this, and he saw that the just shall live by faith, he went, that's it. That's why I'm not just. I try too hard. I'm not living by faith. And so he began to study this book and reading uh, Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans, I, I've been really enjoying reading through that again because you see a guy's life is changed by discovering the truth of the grace of God and how God gives his righteousness to us. We don't earn it. We don't make it happen ourselves, trusting him to do that. So that's the theme of the book of Romans. Now, for the rest of this chapter, he goes into a long description primarily of Gentiles. A lot of this would have to do with Jews too, but he's talking about people who don't know God and how they got so screwed up. Because if he's going to talk about righteousness, then again, you have to establish first of all what about when there isn't righteousness? What's sin about? What is unrighteousness about? Because if, if God's provision in the gospel is going to fix what's wrong with you, we need to face what's wrong with us. 
Now, beginning in chapter 2, he talks specifically more about the Jews who are under the law and the fact that even the Jews, doing, being the best Jews they can be, it doesn't make them righteous. But here he begins by just talking about mankind in general, and so that it's less <coughs> threatening, he first goes to some of the more gross and obvious sins and talks about them, and then he talks about the deterioration and how what God has gone through as he created people because he wanted to love them, and then they continue to rebel against him, and how in this process, God has to keep throwing his hands up and saying, okay, fine, you can do that. See, God lets us do whatever we want to do. But he doesn't want us to do the wrong things because he loves us and he knows the wrong things is what's ruining our lives. But he'll fight with you for a while on it and then he'll just go, okay, you know, fine. C.S. Lewis in one of his books says, there are two kinds of people in the world. On the one hand are people who say, thy will be done, like Jesus said when he was praying to the Father. Those are the people who say, God, I want to do whatever you want me to do. And he said, the other kinds of people are the people to whom God says, all right then, have it your way. Burger King people. The people who God says, okay, if you insist on doing that, go ahead. But there's a price that's going to be paid. You're going to find out someday why I told you not to do that. So now he goes into this discussion. There are a ton of words. We'll go through it and, and um, you know, try to make sense of it as we look at it. But this is an ugly picture of a world apart from God. And it shows how people get messed up when they start with God. And this is basically the story of the history of civilization. And it's many of our stories as well. Even as we're seeing on Sundays and as we're going through Ephesians and he talks about you were dead in your trespasses and sins and God made you alive. Now he's saying, let's take a flashback and let's see what your life was like apart from God. So he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The wrath of God. If you take yourself outside of the blessing of God, if you decide that you're not going to do things his way, then ultimately you're putting yourself in the path of the wrath of God. This isn't the temper of God. It's not that you know God just gets so mad that you don't do what he says that, man, is he going to nail you. But everything that separates you from God moves you toward wrath. Because there are two paths in this world to go on. One of them that leads toward hell, and one of them that leads towards heaven. The wrath of God is there because of rebellion against God. God hates the devil. He hates what the devil is trying to do to destroy people. And so he's created hell, which is a place where the devil is ultimately going to go. He doesn't want people to go there. He doesn't want anybody to go with him. But all the hell that exists on this earth today is there because of people rejecting Jesus Christ and going against him. And so the wrath of God is whenever you put yourself in a position where 
you are not on God's side anymore. You don't want to do it his way. If you follow him, you'll navigate through all the dangers and hazards of this world, and you won't feel his wrath. You won't feel judgment, because he'll keep you out of those things that naturally lead to judgment. But if you don't listen to him and you don't do things his way, the wrath of God. You know, the, over in John chapter 3, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, and he, he said that, you know, well, you remember John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then he says, God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But he said that the world is already condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten of the Father. So wrath is here because people have decided to go against what God says. And you put yourself in that wrath when you take yourself out of fellowship with God. <coughs> so the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against everything that's ungodly and everything that's unrighteous. If you're not doing things God's way and you're not in fellowship with him, you are in a dangerous spot. And he says, people who just live that way suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, it's not that you don't know what's right. You know what's right. You're just deciding not to do it. You'd rather do what you want to do than to do what's right. And he, he goes on to demonstrate that even people who don't have the Bible, they aren't doing what they know is right. And people who want to live in sin are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. That is, I don't want to know the truth because I want to do what I want to do. So they're actually holding down God. They're muzzling him. They're like, God, stay out of my way. Don't tell me what to do. I already know what I'm going to do, and I don't care if it's right or not. And that's what leads people into really ruining their lives, by the way. But he says people are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness or because of unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. Now he begins to talk about the fact that human conscience is there. There's something inside every person that lets them know that there's a sense of right and wrong and that gives them enough information that should they pursue that and look for doing things right, that that path will lead them to God. That God is trying to reveal himself to them, even in their conscience, and also in nature itself, as he's going to say. The point is, hey, it's not just people who are in church that are without excuse. Everyone in this world has enough in them that they could look for and try to find a righteousness. And, and seeking for that and following that would lead them to God. Now you go, yeah, but how could they know about Jesus unless somebody sends them? Yes, and Jesus said, how can they know unless somebody comes and tells them? And yet there are places many, many times in cultures that are very remote where it's amazing when a missionary gets there and they begin to talk to these people and they already know the fundamentals of the gospel. 
They believe in one God who created them, who loves them, even to the point where they believe that God sent his son and, and died for them. And they've never seen a Bible, never met a Christian. If you go with what you know, God is going to lead you. And so we don't ever have to worry about people who really want the truth and they just never find it. Because whoever, whoever seeks will find so he says, you know, they, what, what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So he says, ever since creation, there's a lot you can learn about God just by looking at creation. Not only the conscience that's within you, but look at the world and go, okay, what's God like? And you can find so many of his attributes, the great power that he has, even the compassion and, and love that he possesses, his huge size, and there are so much that's revealed. Now, as you dig deeper, you find more and more analogies that instruct you more and more about who God is. It's amazing how, as the Bible says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day they utter speech, and night unto night they show forth knowledge. Now, how much do you have to know in order to get saved? Um, you guys have heard the whole gospel, so you're certainly without excuse. But... What would happen if there are people out in the jungle in the middle of nowhere who believe in a great God, a loving God, and a God of right and wrong, and they, and they, you know, they know everything that you could figure out from what they've been given, and they're seeking that God and praying to that God, but they don't know the name of Jesus or, you know, whatever. Um, I don't know. That's up to God to deal with. But think about this. Everyone in the Old Testament didn't really know or understand about Jesus coming and giving his life. The Bible says, to whom much has been given, much will be required. So certainly, God deals with people based on what has been revealed to them. But his point is that people, even in other cultures who haven't heard about Christianity, don't generally live true to what they do know. And they don't pursue that most of them rebel against even what they should know and what has been revealed. Most of them aren't pursuing it. And so, as he says, they are without excuse. Because, although they knew God, that's an interesting saying. Everyone starts out on some level knowing God. But there are some people who move away from that knowledge of God. Maybe when you're a little kid, you're told about God and you believe in him. It may just be in a primitive culture where someone just has a sense of who God is. Now what do you do with the rudimentary introduction of that kind of a relationship? And according to Paul, there are some people who move away from that because although they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God, nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
So he says, they put their own lives downhill. They started out and they had a sense of something about God, knew something about him. But for selfish reasons and for, you know, busyness or whatever, they didn't glorify God. They didn't pursue him anymore. They didn't look to find out more about him. They didn't give him credit. And also, they didn't thank him. See, there's something within us that ought to let us know that we should be grateful to someone. But he says, when you don't glorify God as you know him, and you're not thankful, now you're taking a step downhill. Now you're heading into a much more hazardous situation. And he said, that's what happens to everyone who falls away from God. Everyone who heads off and doesn't believe in him and doesn't discover that relationship with him. Now, this is a a convicting thing for us. Because if not glorifying God and not being thankful is the starting point to ruining your life and being away from God, I suspect we don't do that enough. Oh, we have one day of thanksgiving but it's really more of a celebration of gluttony and tryptophan when it comes down to it, you know, and football. To be thankful, to stop and notice what God is doing, it's so fundamental to a relationship with him. God's blessed us so much, and yet we usually have a lot more to pray for than we ever do to thank him for. How thankful are we? To not be thankful and to not give God credit for what he's done and glorify him, worship him, is the beginning of practical atheism. It's living your life like there is no God. And for many people, that ends up leading them to have no connection with God at all. And and this is invariably where it starts. And that should scare us a bit. You know, we should go... Yeah, maybe we could take a little more time. Maybe at least when we pray for every one thing we ask him for, we should thank him for something. Just as a reminder, why is this so important? You know, is it that God gets mad when you don't say thank you like a, like a parent does? You know, if you don't thank him for gifts? No, it's not that at all. It's that when I thank God, it causes me to remember how much he's done for me. And realizing God's love for me is everything. If I don't thank him, I don't appreciate him, I don't realize how blessed I am, I become depressed and sad and have a negative take on life, and it just started out by not saying thank you enough and therefore realizing how lucky we are. Or blessed we are. I know some people don't like the luck word. I I like it. So he says... They're without excuse. They weren't thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts. They just became lost in their own ideas. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Further they sunk away from God, the more, the more dumb they became. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Now they started thinking that they've got the answers. And they started becoming kind of their own God worshiping the God of pride. And he goes, the more smart you think you are, the more foolish you're actually going to become. And you can watch this in people's lives. The more arrogant they are, the more prideful they become, 
They think they're above it all. What causes, and we've seen a lot of examples recently in the news, even just in the sports realm, what causes an athlete who's on top of the world to do something that they know can cause them to lose everything? They just think they know best. They're prideful. They think they're above it all. They think nobody's going to know about that or nobody's going to find out about this. And you go, how smart is it to, for instance, throw away years of a football career and spend a couple of years in jail because you like to race dogs? I mean, how fun could that really be? I mean, but it's so crazy. But pride does that to us. Pride causes a, you know, the greatest gold medalist ever to just be, you know, smoking a bong, realizing there's people, there's cameras in every phone in this room, and this would be big news. But what causes you to, what causes an athlete to use steroids, knowing that they test you for it, knowing that other people get caught for it, but you just think you're smarter than that. You just think that you're going to get away with stuff that other people don't get away with. And rejecting God and not appreciating what he has done for you, not glorifying him for the talent that he has given you, but taking credit for it yourself, is a, is a recipe for stupidity in your life. That's one reason why I like it when the athletes give glory to God when something good happens. And I saw Kurt Warner talking about this, and he says, people think when after they win a big game, and he goes, you know, thank you, Jesus. He goes, I'm not thanking Jesus for the four touchdowns. I'm not thanking him that we won a stupid football game. He goes, that's just a game. He said, I'm getting blessed by all this attention, and I just want to remember that everything I have came from him. I'm thanking Jesus for my life, not for a stupid football game. And how many of us could learn from that? Thanksgiving, on the one hand, makes you grateful, and it puts you in a position of blessing. Arrogance, on the other hand, sets you up for disaster because it just makes you do stupid things. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. This always leads to idolatry of one kind or another. Whether it's image, I mean, look at talented people in Hollywood or in the music business and how something changes and instead of enjoying the blessings of being talented, now it's all about image. And you become a parody of what you used to be. And everything is about that image, the American idol. We, we do it as much today as they did back in you know, pagan cultures. But somehow we trade away a relationship with God for something that's simply idolatry, that's just all about image. It's just about pretending that you're something that you aren't. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. In other words, if you're not going to worship God, now you turn God into a man. You just pretend like God's just like you. You turn God into something that he's not. Therefore, God also gave them up. 
to uncleanness. God goes, if that's what you're going to do, okay. And what do they do? The first thing that they want to do when they can make up their own God is uncleanness. We're just driven to do things that aren't good for us. That word, therefore, um, <coughs> uncleanness, a catharsia in the Greek. Catharsia is a word that means to heal. You know, we talk about something being cathartic, means it's healing or soothing. The A makes it negative. And so he goes, as soon as you start making up your own God, the first thing you sink into is instead of being a healer, instead of making things better, instead of caring for others and nurturing them, you become very unhealing. You create your own sickness. You go downhill very quickly. It's, you can read through this and, and then go to TMZ.com and see what superstars are doing today with the success that they have and you see this happens all of a sudden they're not healthy anymore they're doing things that that they know are bad for them and and it just goes on but the whole world does this it's just more visible with celebrities in the lusts of their hearts just doing what they want to do to dishonor their bodies among themselves to dishonor their bodies. That sounds kind of funny because we don't think about honoring our bodies. But when we do things that God tells us not to do, things that aren't healthy for us, we're dishonoring the body that the Bible says is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And I don't think we take this seriously enough. That word there for, for dishonor comes from the word teme, which means to honor, glorify, or to put something on a pedestal. And then it has the A at the, at the beginning of it that says, not that way. Our bodies should be something that we honor, that we treat with a understanding that they're fragile and temporary, that they are a gift. We should take care of our bodies and, and honor them in the same way that we would honor a celebrity or honor God. The Bible uses the same word for honor for how we treat God. Now, our bodies aren't the same as God, but when you fall away from God, one of the first things you do is you don't care what's good for you anymore, really, because you're doing what you want to do, which is almost always something that's bad for you. And according to Paul, take a look at how thankful you are, Take a look at whether or not you acknowledge what God is doing in your life. Take a look at whether what you are doing is bringing healing to others or whether it's making them more sick. And then right up here at the top of the list, how, how are you treating your body? Is it something that you honor? Not worship. Not, you know, and, and, and it isn't so that you can be prideful or arrogant. It's just so your body will work so that you can have as many years to do what God wants you to do as he wants to give you in as reasonable condition as you can be and for that to happen. You know, this isn't, you know, looking at yourself in the mirror, but this is like, do I respect my body? 
respect its limitations, respect what's good for it or not, and so on. But God gave them up, and the first thing they do is dishonor their bodies. They do it among themselves. They do it together. And then, who exchange the truth of God for the lie. If you don't want to know what God says, you don't care about his word, then you're just going to be believing things that aren't true. God will tell you the truth. Almost everybody else is going to lie to you. And so he says that's what they do. They trade the truth for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. If you don't worship God, you're going to worship something. And most people in this world are worshiping stuff that's made up. Things that are just, you know, whether buildings or cars or bank accounts or whatever, they're devoting their lives to something that was made rather than to the one who made everything, who created everything. You're, you're going to have a God. If it's not the God who made you, it's going to be something that he made. And that's ironic. And he says, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. Again, interestingly, the word for vile, we have one idea about vile, and you can see because he talks about homosexuality here, and oh, vile, but, but the word there for vile is, again, it's the word atimius, another form of teme or honor with the negative prefix on it. And he's saying in a, in a dishonoring way, you live by passion, that which you just want to do. You want to be dishonoring, and God says, okay, then go ahead and embarrass yourself. Go ahead and do that which you should be humiliated to do, but I'll let you do it. I'm not going to fight you on it. You'll see where it leads. Hopefully for you, it'll lead to you discovering that God has something better for you. But God, for this reason, because they weren't worshiping him, he gave them up to these non-honoring passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. I guess he was less surprised when men got into perversions, but he's going, man, even the women. You know, why are the women going off like this? Probably because the guys aren't interested in having normal relationships with the women, so the women then are driven to have wrong relationships themselves. Um, but he, he includes them in it and saying they take what's natural and they turn it into something that's against nature. And then likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. There's no way to escape this. Paul's pretty clear that as he's talking about people who don't honor God, he jumped right to a problem that they had in Rome that was a major problem, and that was the problem of homosexuality. Now, before you get all excited and it's like, yeah, he's going to nail the homosexuals, he's going to nail us all before this chapter's finished. Don't worry. 
But to him, homosexuality is a perfect example of when you substitute one thing for another. So God makes things to work in one way, but when you're not honoring him, you're then substituting something else. Now he goes on and talks about, you know, um, every other kind of sin imaginable, but this is one that jumped out because in Rome it was a huge problem. Now it wasn't just in Rome, it wasn't just homosexuality per se, but it, it was much worse than even that because in their culture it was very common for men to have young boys who were effeminate and they would raise them to be their little boyfriends um, and it was a pretty accepted thing in their culture. So much so that when, when there was a prominent person who didn't have their little boyfriends, it was thought to be unusual. For instance, um, one of the historians talks about Socrates and says that Socrates didn't have young male um, sexual cohorts, which was unusual. He goes on to say Plato did, you know, so many of the other philosophers did. So, of course, I mean, it's hard to imagine something much worse than taking some little kid and turning them into a sex toy for some old man and to use for his purposes. That's disgusting. That ruins that kid's life. And Paul is using it as an example, but also using all homosexuality as an example of of not figuring out the obvious that God has made sexuality for a particular purpose to work in a particular way, and man, will it mess you up if you twist that, if you change that, if you pervert that. It becomes self-evident, and you'll make your own life miserable if you choose to live that way. Now, what do you do about the fact that there are some people who are just totally drawn to a homosexual orientation? And more and more, our culture, like the Roman culture, is saying it's okay. And so if things are a little weird with you with somebody of the opposite sex, right away you start thinking, maybe I'm gay, and maybe that'll explain things. And there are people, sadly, who are settling for that and somehow feeling like, I think this is the way I was made, it's never a healthy thing. It's, homosexuality is not, according to the Bible, is just not something that's going to really give somebody the kind of life that God wants you to have. Now you go, but wait, I'm just drawn to it. I've, ever since I was a little kid, I, I'm not going to argue that with you. Some people say it's nature. Some people say it's nurture. I don't even care. But I'll tell you this, man, the, my body tells me every time I see a piece of cake to eat it. If I do that, I'll die young. My body tells me when I see something really nice to steal it if I can't afford to buy it. What would society be like if I did that? See, just because you want to do something doesn't make it a smart thing to do, doesn't make it good for you. And so Paul is, again, using this, and I don't mean to offend anyone. This is a problem in our society, and it's something that we need to face up to. We also need to face, as, as Christians, the fact that this is not some sin that's like, oh, it's so much worse than all other sins. 
It's a sin in the same way that everything else is. Sexual sin does tend to hurt you in a way that's greater than other sins do because it's something that's within the body, the Bible says. So in terms of the damage that it can do to you, definitely sinning in a sexual area has some, has some deeper ramifications, certainly. But according to the Bible, it's all doing things that God tells you not to do, and he has really good reasons to tell you not to do it. Your life would be better if you do things his way. And so, he says, people who are living in this, in this way are receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. In other words, it's not that God's going to beat them up over it. It's that they are suffering the consequences of those lifestyle choices. The, the, the choice itself carries its own judgment with it. That's just the way it is. And by the way, that doesn't please God. It, God is saddened every time. You know, these people that are out there going, you know, acting like God's excited whenever somebody who's homosexual dies of AIDS because, yeah, I got another one. God's heart is absolutely torn and broken every time he sees someone hurt their life in any way. And any time they pay the, the price for decisions that they make or choices that they make, God's heart is absolutely broken. Don't ever think that God is someone who takes pleasure in people getting what they, quote, deserve. He sent Jesus to die for you so that you wouldn't have to get what you deserve. And his heart is broken whenever anyone rejects that. But he goes on to say, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, it's like, I don't want to know about him, God gave them over to a debased mind, a mind of, of uh, disapproval, literally, to do those things which are not fitting, not appropriate, really. God goes, hey, if you want to live some weird way, okay, okay. I'm telling you just the best way to live. I'm telling you the way to live to find total fulfillment. But if you want to live some other way, God gives them up, lets them do it. And... Then he goes on to say, being filled with all unrighteousness, doing everything against God. Sexual immorality, which is the uh, general word for sexual misconduct, pornaya. It's the word we get pornography from. I think pornography would be included in this category. Um, and doing anything that God tells you not to do in a sexual area, he says, I'm not just talking about homosexuals. I'm talking about everybody who doesn't do it my, the way I tell you to do it. Wickedness, covetousness, that is greed. We act like greed is good, Gordon Gecko said in the movie Wall Street. You know, and we kind of live that way. Like That's what makes our economy grow is greed. But God says, when you want what you don't have, when you're just driven by wanting to get more and more, you never have enough. It's the same kind of destructive thing. That will ruin your life just as fast as any other sin. Maliciousness, envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, whisperers, people who gossip, backbiters, people who talk behind your back against you. 
haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, a word that just means stupid, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Wow. <laughs> we were feeling pretty good when he was just nailing the homos, huh? <laughs> it's like, what, disobedient to parents? Braggers? Greed? He goes, yeah, it's all turning away from what you know about me and living life your own way. It's all the same, man. You're not better than anybody else. We're all condemned. And once we understand this, and he started off with the really bad stuff, so we're going, yeah, yeah, sin, sin, preach it. And then we like start getting down to the stuff about gossip, and we're like, uh-oh, what's going on here? But what Paul is trying to say, and he ordered it that way on purpose, to bring us all to the point where we could go at the end Oh man, I also have fallen away from gratefulness to God and, and fall into a pattern of living life my own way. And I'm messing my own life up too. I'm guilty also. I need to be saved. I need to be forgiven. I need a fresh start. Who, verse 32, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. So he says, not only do you do all this stuff, but you're encouraging other people to do it. Or you're watching them do it on movies and TV. Or you're cheering them on as they do it. In other words, we're all messed up. And so... It's really good news that God's taken care of that for us, that he's paid for our sins. And he wanted to show us right off the bat, here's how lives get messed up. And then he wanted to show us, and you guys have all experienced this personally, and so when I tell you the good news that Jesus Christ loves you and died for you and rose again from the dead... And you can escape the trap that sin has on your life. Your life doesn't have to be a who's who of all this stuff. You don't have to check them all off and go, yep, sounds like he's talking about me. There's hope. As we go through the book of Romans, we're going to see God has an answer for all this. This is not going to be bad news at all. And it's really not. The message that we all sin, it's not bad news. If I'm ruining my life, I need to know. And that's why Paul is sharing this stuff. Not so we'll get depressed, but so we'll go, oh man, do I need this book? Do I need to hear what you have to say about how I can be delivered from self-destruction and sin and wastefulness and dishonor? How can I get to the point where I'm not embarrassing myself at every moment? And he's going to have some incredible answers to that as we go through this book. He's going to pick on the Jews next week, so if you're a Gentile, you know, you'll relax. But it applies to all of us because it reminds all of us we can't follow the rules. 
it isn't really going to talk just to Jews. It's also going to talk to legalists who think that if they do everything right, somehow they earn something. You'll find out, nope, doesn't work. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word and for sharing these things with us. It's a painful message to a degree when we take it in a chunk like this. But we know the truth and we know that it's all good news because the problems that we talked about tonight, you've provided a solution. Thanks, God, for giving us your word, for telling us the truth even when we don't want to hear it. And thank you for the hope that you can work in our lives so that we stop destroying ourselves and each other. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.